Good day, morning, evening fans. Uh, today I get to sit down with Goran Stalewski, the award-winning Macedonian-born and Australian-raised writer, director, and editor who came to prominence with short films, including Would You Look at Her, which was the winner of the Best International Short at Sundance in 2018. Collectively, his shorts have played over 200 festivals worldwide. He also directed three episodes of the fourth season of the international Emmy-winning series Nowhere Boys. Goran's feature debut, You Won't Be Alone, is steeped in Macedonian folklore with a genre twist. It premiered in competition for the Grand Jury Prize at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, receiving rave reviews from critics around. Today, we're going to talk about his latest film, Of an Age, which comes out this weekend. In the summer of 1999, an unexpected and intense 24-hour romance blossoms between an 18-year-old Serbian ballroom dancer and his best friend's older brother. A decade later, the pair meet for a bittersweet reunion. Of an Age is such a stunning film. It is made with such love and care. The performances are absolutely extraordinary, and the story is beautiful. It's so special. It's raw, it's vulnerable, and honestly, those words don't even do it justice. If I look at my notes, I have these words scribbled all over the place on the top of my, on the script. I have tender, kind, honest, heartwarming. Honestly, I should pull up the IMDb and do a two-hour episode talking through each individual cast and crew line by line, sharing my thoughts on how incredible each of those people were. Don't even get me started on cinematography. Matt, I see you. Extraordinary work. And I can do an entire separate episode on sound design, which is usually not something I highlight when I'm making notes while watching something, but it is extraordinary. This film's a masterpiece. Warning. We obviously needed about three or four more hours to finish this conversation, uh, so maybe we'll find that in the future. Uh, because one, we only had 30 minutes to chat, and two, I spent about half of that just fanning out, because I love this movie. First and foremost, there's not enough time for this interview. Uh, I can say that after watching your movie, I was like, I've got 30 minutes to sit down with this man, and I don't even know how to extrapolate all the things I want to pick out of your brain about this. So first and foremost, congratulations. This is one of the most powerful and beautiful films I've seen in the last five years. It's extraordinary. Thank you. I needed to hear this today. Thank you so much, man. That's no, it's, quite something to be hearing. I mean, I'm mad at you partially uh, because it's incredible what you've accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, I love it. Real mad at me because I'm apparently good. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I, yeah, I want to be angry. I want to be angry with you because how good this is. It's just because when you see it, the sim, your the way you told the story was so. Uh, it was it was like I was in the car. I was with them. I was along with the journey with them. There wasn't a moment that wasn't that every moment I I hung on to, and there's not necessarily movies like that anymore. So. Um, we're going to dive in, into all of that. But as we transition to that, I need to know, what is your favorite 90s movie? Favorite 90s movie? Oh, God. Um, I've been thinking a lot about LA Confidential recently. And I don't, I'm not sure even what set it off, just purely because it felt like such a canonical film at the period. And I never hear anyone talk about it. And like, especially now, as I'm kind of spending more time, you know, writing stories. When I watched it, I was just a kid. I was 12, 13, and then 14. I watched it again and again. Because uh, I love film noir especially, but I'm not sure I appreciated how hard it is to pull that off and to craft a, like that 
complex a story in with that much that you know character layering but it's also like kind of pulpy and exciting at the same time and satisfying so anyway i don't know why people don't talk about that film anymore because it's just like one of the greatest ever made um but probably favorite of all time would probably be three colors red oh uh, out, out of the 90s anyway great choice so <laughs> i uh i'm a big much like you uh, i've done a the moment I watched this movie, I've, I spent the last 48 hours just re- learning everything about you. But uh, I'm a big Linklater fan, and Days and Confused is one of my favorite movies. And same sort of thing. I went back and watched that, you know, five years ago, and I didn't realize watching it when I was in high school, like how incredibly complex that movie is, and especially the budget they made it for, and how many characters, and how it was like you're just pulled along. Anyway, it was it was extraordinary. Uh, what's your favorite mm-hmm. 90s song? It doesn't have to be the, your favorite, but what is one of your favorite 90s songs? Um, uh, I I don't know. I'm, I'm probably gonna. Well, I am very uncool, but like, uh, it's probably obvious from anyone who watches my film. Tori Amos definitely is the '90s to me. Yeah. Um, and the song I go back to of hers is "A Pretty Good Year" from one of her early albums. Um, which isn't particularly famous, but I feel like I can listen to it at every age, from 18 through to what I am now which is 37 and it means something different and it still kind of takes me you know emotionally to, to, to a higher place i don't know how to describe it um so that's the one i love it um were you were you inspired by music videos of the 90s um, no i didn't really kind of engage with that side of things like in the late 90s and early 2000s especially is when my film film nerddom flowered or exploded or kind of you know became like the entire world for me and I kind of was mainly lost in um work from other eras I I sort of I migrated to Australia in 97 when I was 12 and I didn't want to be there um I didn't want to be in my day-to-day life I've since realized how common it is for everyone who hits puberty to not want to be in the place that is so boring to them you know every day but I I decided to blame Australia and I decided to go oh why did this happen to me because I you know I was an unruly migrant um and like the way to get through day-to-day life was to like what i would turn to to the arts with movies and music especially is to be taken to faraway places and faraway times i was you know busy watching katherine Hepburn movies and ingmar bergman movies and that's where life happened or you know the closest you'd get to me was isabella pear and like isabella pear was on the other side of the world living a very different life a different age you know mm-hmm. so yeah, even and even with like music videos, I didn't really engage that much or like what was in the charts because music videos was what was happening in the present day, and I was like, I, I I don't I can't do that, I can't handle that. <laughs> yeah, I love I love your perspective of time uh, uh, as a person. You can see it in your in your films, but uh, it was you and I love what you said about the journey of the characters and essentially your journey about time and place and how you reflect how this movie is essentially a reflection of your your youth is that correct yeah it's kind of an uh, this one especially is like a very detailed emotional autobiography of who i was you know even in the the moment I, um in 99 i was actually 14 not 17 but the character the lead character of nicola is pretty much my personality at that age at 14. um and even when i came came up with the first idea i was reading a short story that was like a random boy went to a random party in high school for the first time and like i don't even know why but suddenly i just had a very intense flashback to the one party i ever went to in high school and it wasn't that it was a significant event or interesting in any way but like it kind of 
suddenly I was flooded with this feeling of what it felt like on the inside to be me at that age and what I thought life would be and what I thought love would be like. And I was kind of very absent from my life uh, at the time, like I was saying to me, high school was like the waiting room before you get to, you know, when real life begins at university and onwards. So to suddenly have a very vivid feeling of that in the context of who I became later and who I am now, um, I was just really drawn to that and just like what, you know, time, obviously, in the passing of time does to you uh, in terms of how you feel about life and like, and love, especially when we think love and sex and sexuality are, um, I thought um, that's what I want to kind of play with. And initially, I thought it was just going to be like, my idea was just to do the section that is now the 1999 version. Uh, but then it, I didn't feel like that was quite enough. I, I think there is an inherent like sense to it of like me looking back at a time and, you know, I'm not exactly the, the person who's make, telling the story is not exactly the same person who is on screen, obviously, but I, I still needed to kind of go, go a little bit further because I, I wanted it to be a little bit more detailed. I had a lot of complicated feelings about, you know, what the passing of time does to you and how you then look back on yourself. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated with time, and I loved how you, you used it. I loved the 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 leap forward, and then how you reflected upon that. That was it was so uh, it was it was perfect. When you came to Australia, obviously, as you said, you're an unwilling uh, migrant. Did you uh, did you ever feel like it was home? Was at any point in your life have you felt like Australia, any part of it, is home to you? Um, there was a brief period and it actually coincided with around the time I realized I was uh, queer and sort of very comfortable and militant about it very quickly. But around like, yeah, 17, 18, 19, when for the first time when I went back to Macedonia, because I used to go quite regularly and a lot of my family still is there, um, I suddenly felt like that wasn't home at all um, anymore. And I think it was partly related to the queer thing, but there was also a few other things. And especially like just being very keenly aware of uh, misogyny as well. Um, not in a as a distant issue, but just like in a way that kind of you know affected me primarily. And realizing that it was the female aspects of me that were also you know things I'm still supposed to suppress and so on and so forth. Um, I, I became very alienated from Macedonia, but um, so it made me a little more comfortable with Australia. And also, I was finally hitting that cusp where university was about to start. Um, so you know, the, I was you know like the, the doors were sliding open of the waiting room and I could see it. And I was like, okay, so now life is going to begin and now I'm going to experience what everything Australia has to offer. So I think there was a hopefulness then that made me feel like, oh, okay, I am in the right place uh, very briefly. Um, but no, beyond that, not, not really. I definitely feel like I belong more in the West now, culturally speaking, than during the East. I still see, I get, someone bit my head off once about seeing Eastern Europe as the East, but you know, for lack of a better term. Right. But um, no, I grew up in a place that was very crowded. Um, it was a tiny industrial town, but like I was in the middle of it in a tiny flat with eight people living in two bedrooms at, be between them. And then like you go out in the street and there's people everywhere. Whereas in Australia, wherever I went, you can walk down the street for two hours and there's no really people. There's just like cars and joggers, but that's not really people in the book. You know, there's no people going about their day to day life much less people of different generations. There's not like grandparents taking the grandkid to school, which to me is what gives a sense of life to a place. I always felt Australia was very kind of insulating emotionally. Um, I haven't gotten rid of that feeling, but I also don't think it's Australia's fault. I think it's entirely about my own makeup and maybe I just can't be satisfied with anything ever. <laughs> I, I, I get that. When you, 
when you made this movie and you saw it, you're you're editing it right, and you you finish the your first director's cut. What is it that you hoped when people saw this? Like, what did you want them to feel when they finished seeing it? What was your main goal? Uh, I think it was genuinely like that sense of um, like like I felt he was so under my skin and vice versa, and Nicola and Adam as well by the end, and especially looking at the story from his perspective. Like I was, I was so in the middle, you know, with them, with these characters and these actors. Um, we're very close off screen now as well, um, and. So when you get to the end, there, the, to me, there there is a kind of emotional gut punch I don't really know how to phrase or describe. And, you know, the, the only way the film lives on after me is if that gut punch can be transferred to a viewer. So with the first gut, I was just looking for someone who, you know, like, I, uh, I love that, like, the first person who watched it forgot that it was just a cut. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a finished film or anything they forgot to take notes like the first time i watched it i forgot to take notes and that's never that had never happened to me before or or to my producer christina who watched it so um i think the way she became very emotional about it and you know she's had a different life there's parallels inevitably between most if you find two random people i will find parallels in their lives for you, but <laughs> still we have very different backgrounds but um that was it that that emotional you know sense and a, a lot of, a lot of it um I think both my features like come down to a feeling of uh, is it really worth it? Like everything you have to go through to find that connection, um, you know, like is it really worth it when there's a lot that destroy you know, that is destructive along the way? So I think that's the moment where that film ends. So is it really worth it? Um, for me, there's a specific answer, but I didn't want to impose that answer. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I get that. And did you? Did anyone ever try to give you advice that you should impose that answer? <laughs> um, I think, like, to be honest, this has been the weirdest experience in that it was so easy to put together, like, in financing and in the, we finished shooting two days early. Um, even, like, in the middle wow. of the shoot, we were running so far ahead of schedule, we had two days off so the boys could grow facial hair. You know, and aged into 2010. Yeah. Um, and at the and beginning of this, like, you asked me no, why I'm mad at you. This is why I'm mad at you. Because you, yeah, yeah, no, you, you can tell. You can tell when you watch it. You can tell. ridiculous. <laughs> like, you know, nothing will ever be easy again or was before. But, like, you know, just consider, like, for context, for 20 years before I made my first feature, I, I, I was making short films for 20. I made 25. I, th That's amazing. This is two of 13 features I'd written. I'd been unemployed for so long. I can't even tell you how much rejection and how many people I wasn't good enough for along the way. But I think there was a sense that even though You Won't Be Alone wasn't finished yet, um, that I'd kind of, with that film, if, whether or not you liked it, there was a sense that I delivered on the vision I said I would, you know, and apparently that's not very common, which is hilarious. No. So I think people felt like whatever I'm saying, I will achieve, they thought that they believed that it would, which was like 180 degrees from the rest of my life leading up to that point. There was some suggestion of like, what would you imagine happens to them, you know, if, if you stayed with them for another five or 10 minutes in that room? And I kind of, I mean, I have a very concrete idea, but I was like, I, I, I think that doesn't work if I reveal that. I yeah. think, um, I think we need to live in that feeling in the end and, and reflect on that rather than kind of make things too neat and summarized.
Amen. I agree. I completely agree. Uh, to your note about taking notes while you're watching it, usually I'm having to, you know, watch these and make notes for the interview and yada, yada, yada. Had my laptop out, my pen and paper, and I'm not sure. I just closed the laptop after like three minutes and then I put my pen and paper and I had to watch it back to back twice because one, I wanted to, but then I had to take notes the second time around. So it, that's the first time on these interviews I've ever had to do that again, just because I didn't take notes the first time. And like then the, na- the notes were crazy. I've got no, I mean, there was like circle and I'm like, okay, now we're going to dive into this thing. And there's like so many notes. And one of my biggest takeaways, and this has never happened to me before. As I was watching this at the end, I was like, one of the, I mean, there's so many incredible qualities about this, but one of the things that has never stood out to me before in a movie was the sound design. And I was like, this movie, like so much of it resonated with me because of the way you your, I'd love to see your script. The, the cross-talking that happens at the parties and as characters are transitioning and the sounds, all of it is done so beautiful. The bass from a different room that just kind of barely like resonating and you can hear it. And then you've got like this, I'm guessing an original score with these like beautiful like composed pieces, elements that connect all of it uh, from the sound mixing, editing, sound supervisor. It's amazing. How did you achieve this? Yeah, I, I mean, I work with very good people. <laughs> um, I'm very finicky because, like, when I'm editing a scene, I'm not just. I, I, well, firstly, I never do a rough version. It needs to, like, always feel the best I could possibly do in that particular moment, and that includes the sound. So I go, I go into like literally cutting the breaths, you know, individual breaths at a particular moment and cutting them out because I feel like. Obviously, you know, like you can use sound so much to control how connected someone is to the person on screen. Um, and so I, I kind of go in for those details from the beginning and then with the music as well. And that's how I kind of get stuck into certain patterns where like the fine cut, the picture lock version has to kind of be very close to the final version because it's so glued to the particular piece. Uh, and in this case, it's 35 of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> And um, actually, none of them is actually composed for the film. Wow, They're all really? um, licensed. Even, even the piece that feels like score, it's actually a piece uh, I came across. Um, it was uh, someone had uh, used that as part of a promo for this film. There was a company we contacted for our trailer, and it was just like so beautiful, and it kind of cut into anyway. Like even that had to be licensed. Yeah. Um, wow. And I, was using just, it I mean, it feels music. everything feels so perfect. Thank you. <laughs> that's great. No, but it's all like because I, I what I do my approach in filmmaking is always like work with what's there work with what's in front of you not the idea you had um and uh, inevitably a lot of it is things I envisioned and especially all the songs the characters are hearing on screen like that had to be locked in well in advance we had to talk to Tori Amos's people first off because a, a key scene rests on very detailed conversation about which song of hers we're talking about um but yeah afterwards like in the edit um like I just go, this is what I have in front of me, and these images need to blend, blend with this. Uh, you know, I'm not going to try looking for, I don't know, uh, uh, anyway, insert famous yeah. artist here, uh, because I, I think, like, what's in front of me and what's attainable I need to work with. Um, and, I, you know, I come back, I come from a background where, like, my short films were mainly DIY, and I was the entire crew, and there was no budget, and, you know, What's there was things I imagined the story could be, but like what is there in front of you is what you have to work with. And I think in the edit as well, like, and also looking for details you can bring out that you didn't expect. And then sometimes, you know, putting a piece of music you never thought of before 
against the image just brings out a certain element of feeling. And even if the music isn't completely right, you just it just takes you in a different direction to find something else that's similar. You know, I, I in the scene he walks into the party, I thought we would just be listening to the death metal that's in the room, but I realized that it just became like a really mundane scene and you just lost the, the thread. Um, and it was only when I repeated that same piece that keeps going on that I realized this is the only way you can keep connected to him. But if you're not hearing the party music, it doesn't quite work because then it just becomes a trailer video clip. So it, it, it's all very fine tuned. And even at edits, uh, you know, at editing stage, that needs to be kind of locked in before we get into the sound mix or sound design part. Uh, but then I do work with Emma Bordignon, the sound designer on both of these ones and the, the third one. She's actually working on the third one right now in Melbourne. And like her attention to detail and ideas layering a scene um, is just, it's really hard to find someone who sets high standards for themselves in that way in general, much less can adapt to someone as idiosyncratic as me in the way you work. So, and she's like, like an extreme, she's quite young, but she's a veteran. She's extremely wow. experienced. So I feel very kind of honored that she works with me <laughs> at all. <laughs> like she's quite picky. And, <laughs> There's a and there's an element there also like even when I'm doing all this crazy shit like there is quality control at the end of someone with you know a strong idea and strong understanding of what I want to achieve going I'm not sure the best idea or this is good and this is what else we can do yeah and, and, it, and it works because it's the the party scene uh, the scene in the third act uh, no spoilers but like all those there's a very complex scenes where there's so much sound that could happen in those scenes and you you tweak one or the other it, it kind of falls apart and it's it's so perfect and it keeps you engaged with the characters and the way you shot it pulling really tight into them it's just it, it's incredible how many days did you sh have to shoot this you, you came in two days under how many did you have total scheduled uh, we had 20 days to shoot it but we shot it in 18 but two of those 18 were days off so it was 16 Oh my god. Also we finished early most of the time. This that is happening. How it happened. <laughs> happened again. Like, actually, no, the film I've just finished, we also wrapped a day early. Oh but like, You're a dream, yeah. man. That's incredible. That is... Like if you my background is like being the crew and having not enough anything, much and suddenly I'm like, I've got a crew and equipment and actors who can act. Like, oh I guess this should pass now. <laughs> yeah. I've I've been on sets, I've worked I've seen a lot and I've seen some big projects go sideways. And the one thing that I've seen is that filmmakers who have a vision and you clearly have a very clear point of view and a vision and going into your projects, you you communicate that to the actors. I saw like a note that in you know on one of like the actors you reached out to you sent them like your director's creative statement to the and then in it also like a sound design like uh, creative back like uh, story about what you're going to do with the sound and the way you're going to edit like and I love that you're sharing that with the actors that you're looking to cast like no one does that and so set to edit sir you've seen this movie and you already know how you're going to shoot it and you know where the cameras going to be and where the lights going to be while you're writing it I'm sure and I was like I'm like are you, do your scripts have a lot of like your editing notes and your production notes in them as you're writing it since you're so 360 Absolutely not. No, no, no. I keep all of that entirely. To me, like I write a script purely for the feeling it will give the eventual actor when they read it for the first time. Because a lot of direction for me is literally how the words are shaped in the big print and the dialogue, like in verb I use at what point and what punctuation. Just is the first the way that an actor experiences a character shapes so much of the performance they can never undo again. Yeah, And I don't want them, I never want them to be thinking about how they're going to look uh, or any of those things. I, sh I speak to them about like, uh, 
about it a little bit later just so they can feel kind of safe within a certain story world you know and so that like because there's some things that we do that are unconventional that i think if you don't have an understanding of how i'm going to eventually cut it uh, you'd be like oh that's going to be really stupid you know it's going to sound really stupid but like it's more just to reassure them so they have an idea that like there's other things going on that will you know compensate for something that might not feel exactly right in the moment but the first time they're reading it i need them to just be lost in the story world and lost in the character um and even but also in terms of what you're saying like i do have a very concrete vision of the film before we shoot it like i shot list obsessively and then every night before i shoot the next day i shot list the, i throw away the first version and do a new, new draft but on the morning of the day i throw it away and i never look at it again <laughs> because it's more about absorbing the feeling of it and then again i go back to what's in front of me and going how much is exactly what i pictured and how and then what else is missing and if the thing is missing is usually not something you can bring from thin air so what's in front of me here that can make up for it um you know like and i actually usually look for new things on set and new moments that will surprise me rather if, if i've just shot what i envisioned like, okay well that was the backup version so the scene might not be amazing um and yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. well I, something I, else is gonna happen for it's interesting well in your notes or in the in the production notes i noticed that there's a lot of terms around um you know Matthew had mentioned that you, by the way, like, it's so funny. Like, uh, I, I had Justin Chan in on for the blue Bayou like two years ago. And then I was, I've been trying to get Matthew on this because like, I love his cinematography. And so he had a, in there a note, he had a, he said, we're with working with you. You know, you, you, f you feel the scene, you feel the, you feel the film as you're going through it. And I love that note that you have this intuition, uh, through performance and through production that guides you through it. And so I think it makes sense that you can get <laughs> a movie in 16 days. That's crazy. Uh, how long did it take well, you to I'm write also this? editing while I'm shooting. That was the other thing. Like, I'm actually editing it in my head while I'm shooting. So I know kind of if there's something, if there's a little bit missing to just glue a, a new moment together with the rest, we can pick that up afterwards. But also, I'm not going to shoot a wide shot for backup. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that ends up, you know, when an actor is amazing on close-up in a way that I know holds my attention, I know I'm not going to shoot into a wide shot. And I think it keeps the crew much more connected to the film as well when they know they're not shooting things for backup. Yeah, no, that's uh, that can be daunting, <laughs> like just getting coverage all day long. Yeah, that's yeah. it's a lot. Uh, how long did it take you to write the script? Um, again, this is not representative, but um, uh, eight days. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's the first draft we shot. <laughs> no, like, but it's also it's my thirteenth screenplay. I've written twelve others beforehand, and like twenty, you know. 300 probably short films before that. Still, there's great film um, screenwriters who've taken years to knock out a draft after, you know, successfully knocking a lot of scripts. That's incredible. So eight days, that's amazing. But I mean, they're very, eight very, you know, intense days. Like um, the, the film I want to shoot next, it took me like a year or a year and a half wow. across, you know, so it's not, it's not always one or the other for me. I get it. I was curious. It's a, it's a very powerful film that's, um, it's very soft and it's tender and it's very powerful. I mean, like you, to your point, the gut punch, like there's these, there's these moments throughout it that are uh, so visceral as you're the director, you've written this in your mind, you've seen it in your head a bunch of times, but if you had, did you show up to set one day and be like, Whoa, this is a lot. This is emotionally hard for me to see this. Was there any a day that it was a little too much or no? Well, completely. I mean, like, cause also I try to put my, you know, my headspace in what the actors are going through. Um, anyway like you know if they're crying i'm usually crying in the background and you know like yeah. it's not um 
there's a scene actually the first time I don't even phrase this scene like right after the, they go to the dinner the goodbye dinner mm. the daytime one and yeah. the first time they're in the car saying goodbye in the daytime um that in, in its writing I always we all always saw that scene in this comedy essentially uh primarily and then um I, do, I but I didn't really emphasize that in talking to Elias um who plays Cole the main character and he kind of uh and we also shot that scene kind of unplanned. We finished one day like so early that we just had to add scenes uh, to kill, kill time. So that wasn't something we had prepared for. We we're kind of improvising it, the construction of it a little bit on the spot. So it didn't go too detailed in terms of the direction there. Um, and then he, the first time he played, um, and I was in the back seat and like I started crying inevitably. And suddenly this scene took on a weight that I did not know was there. And it came out of his feelings, connecting to this character in this particular moment, because he plays it like real life. He's not thinking about how this might look, you know, because I don't want him to. And suddenly, and the way he plays feeling, I know he's experiencing it in that moment. He's not mimicking it. So in the in the backseat, I'm just watching this and sort of like falling apart on the inside. And suddenly this scene that I thought was just a gentle transitional one took on all this weight because it's a boy realizing he's queer in real time, which is extremely painful, uh, you know, I remember uh, at the, the very, very first moment. And um, I it, it just shifted my whole understanding of the film. If something that intense is happening at that point, that means the scenes after that can't, can't have, the likeness has to be very specific, you know, and it's sort of um, the weight of that scene then informed it like in leading up to it and we shot it like on the third day of filming so it was still pretty early so i could reshape uh what was coming up to it thankfully in the in the coming days but like uh it was it didn't involve changing dialogue or anything it was just purely tone and you know feeling and it also meant that like my favorite scene in the script which was the nighttime drive that happens later um was instead of out of the seven pages, we did shoot all of it in the end, but like only the first page survived into the final edit because all the feeling that that was going to contribute had already accumulated. And it came from, you know, this boy feeling things as intensely and truly as you would in that particular situation that even I missed out on, you know, that all of us that, you know, we spent so much time with that script missed out on how much weight there was in that moment. Um, and I think to me, when you get that, it's such a gift that you do everything you can to fit because if it stands out by itself, it just comes out as tacky, you know, or misjudged. So yeah, anyway. Man, that's incredible. Uh, it's, it's such a powerful scene and, uh, you've done such a great, incredible job this entire movie. Uh, I know you've got to run, but I have one short question for you. It's a very short one. It's one we ask at the end of every podcast. What is your comfort food? You're having a bad day and you're like, I need to eat this. What is that? Can I say one car away? Emotional comfort food or literally yeah. one car away. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um Goran, it was it's been a, it's a pleasure to talk with you. I, again, I had told you like I the moment I'm like, there's we need like we need two hours for this conversation. We we barely scratched. Oh my god, like the way <laughs> what this is doing to, you know, my sense of self worth. We can do five hours. It's all good. <laughs> thank you well, very much, sir. To well, you. <laughs> thank you. This is such a beautiful movie. It was um I can't wait for the world to see it next week. And uh thank you for making the time to have a conversation with us. It it's a, a true honor. Thank you. Oh, it was a complete pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dwayne. 
And that's a wrap, kids. Thank you for checking out our latest episode. And be sure to see Of an Age in theaters ASAP. Uh, comes out this weekend. And follow Focus Features on Instagram for all the latest on Of an Age. You can also check out our Instagram at The Smith Society Pod for our latest news. And don't forget, we have some live events planned for the summer, so stay tuned. Finally, the best way you can support the Smith Society Podcast is to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow your dreams, no matter where they take you.